The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. Please stand for a reading from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 14. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome again to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm one of the pastors here and we are glad to have you with us, especially if you are perhaps visiting family from out of town for Christmas or just a guest in another way. Welcome to you. Really glad to have you with us this morning. We are continuing our study in the first part of the book of Hebrews this morning. And there's really no better way to phrase the question that this season, Advent, raises than the one that the famous hymn does. What child is this? That's what we've been looking at these last few weeks during this season of Advent as we study this first part of Hebrews. Who is Jesus? Who is this one that we celebrate this time of year? I was reading a book this past week that mentioned that monarch butterflies migrate like birds do, Uh, but it takes the monarch four generations, sometimes five, to complete the cycle every year. And so what that means is that no single butterfly lives to make the full round trip as they leave from Mexico to go to their northern breeding grounds and come back. And entomologists actually don't know I don't really understand what makes each generation of monarch follow the same path, especially the ones that are kind of in the middle of the stream, the ones that didn't set out leaving right from Mexico uh, or returning back. What makes them keep following the same path that their ancestors did? We have been talking about the fact that we are a people who live between the advents, between the first coming of Jesus But before the next one, we are awaiting the return of our king. And in some ways, we are like that generation of monarchs that are in the middle of the migration. Right? We aren't the generation that started this. We may not be the generation that finishes it. And so why do we keep following the path? Why do we keep going down this road year after year in this season of Advent? And the answer to that question, as the first chapter of Hebrews has been reminding us, is that it's Jesus. It's because Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anyone or anything or any other path that we could follow. That's the dominant theme of the whole book of Hebrews, but especially this first chapter. Jesus is better. 
Jesus is better. And in our passages the last couple of weeks, the author's been making that point by comparing Jesus to angels. And if you've been with us, that may have been weird for you. Why is he needing to make this comparison to angels? For the Jewish people at this point in history, that is the highest being to which he could be compared. Right? They had a very high view of angels. And in this section, he's been saying, he's been at pains to say, look, the angels are great, but Jesus is better. Jesus is even better. And so we're going to see in our passage this morning, as he continues that argument, uh, as he continues to compare Jesus to angels, he's doing that all with the hopes of continuing to demonstrate that Jesus is, is so much better, so much better than anything else we could look to. So you can see our outline there in your bulletin. We're going to look, first of all, at the fact that Jesus is the creator, greater than his creation. Jesus is the eternal one, greater than all that is impermanent. And then finally, Jesus is the enemy defeater, greater than the angels he even sends to serve his redeemed people. So that's where we're going this morning. Before we set out, let me pray for us, and we will ask God to bless our time in his word by sending his spirit to us now. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we know that your word is no empty word. It is our very life. We know we don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. And so we have gathered this morning as the sheep of your pasture to be fed by you, Jesus, our good shepherd. You told us that your sheep would know your voice. And so I pray this morning you would help us to hear it and to follow it. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, one of my favorite memories growing up was this uh, big road trip that I got to take with my grandparents. Uh, My mom's cousin was getting married in Seattle, and my grandparents invited me and one of my cousins to ride along with them from Tupelo, Mississippi, in their RV, all the way to Seattle. And so we, took, uh, we set out on that trip, but my grandparents decided to make it the road trip to end all road trips. So we were not taking like a direct line to Seattle. We started heading west because they wanted to go see the Grand Canyon with us. And so we went there, and we went north to Utah, and then over to California, and then up to Seattle, and then we came back. But instead of coming back in a straight line or the way we came, we started heading east, went through Montana into the Dakotas before starting south again. We were gone for 35 days, (laughs) 35 days in an RV with my grandparents. And of course, by the end of it, we all hated each other. It was all just too much, too much being apart. But it was an awesome trip because we got to see the Grand Canyon. I got to see the Redwood Forest. I got to see Yosemite. I got to see Wall Drugstore that you see those signs about. I got to see the whole shebang. I got to see all of America. And we also got to see uh, Mount Rushmore, which for me as a 10-year-old, I just remember thinking was so awesome. I thought it was so amazing that these guys had just taken a bunch of dynamite and jackhammers and just blasted some president's faces into the side of this mountain. Like, that was so impressive to me. And it is kind of the power of Mount Rushmore, right? They carved this thing into a mountain, right? It's supposed to last forever. 
One of the things I did not realize at that point, uh, I learned this later, is that the National Park Service is actually obsessively monitoring Mount Rushmore. They are, they have mapped out every fracture in every single one of those blocks of granite. They regularly are going back through it and re-waterproofing every crack in the whole thing. In 1998, they actually placed electronic sensors all over the monument that record the temperature of the air around it, the temperature of the rock surface, and it's actually capable of measuring movement of less than 0.0001 inches. Those measurements are recorded four times a day. Every few hours, another recording comes in to see if it's moved at all. Can you imagine being the guy who has to check that spreadsheet every day? <laughs> How's it going, Dennis? Still there. <laughs> Hadn't started moving yet. Right? They are obsessing, obsessively measuring those rocks. They are obsessively measuring this mountain because they want to do everything they can to slow down the inevitable. Because they know Right? Well, we all know, even if we don't recognize it when we're looking at something like that, eventually that is going to crumble. The world, as good and as beautiful as it is, is also falling apart. The mountains are disintegrating a little bit at a time. Our passage begins with the author of Hebrews highlighting two important realities about Jesus, that he is the creator of this great universe, and unlike it, he is not falling apart. Let's look first at that first part. Jesus is the creator greater than his creation. If you look back at verse 10, the author is picking up in the middle of a series of quotations from the Psalms. He's been kind of doing this battering ram act of quoting psalm after psalm as he makes his case. And the author is reminding us of what the scriptures say about angels. And then he's comparing that with what they say about the anointed one, about Jesus. Back in verse 7, he quoted Psalm 104 to remind his readers that angels are messengers, right? Winds of fire. And then he goes on in verse 10 in our passage to talk about Jesus. He quotes Psalm 102 to say that Jesus is the one who laid the foundation of the earth. He's echoing what he said back in verse 2, what we talked about a few weeks ago. Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, look, God makes angels. They are created beings. He is the uncreated one. The one who creates is greater than anything that he can possibly create. One of the central tenets of Christianity is this creator-creature distinction. There's a distinction between God and his creation. We're not pantheists who think that the universe and God map onto each other one-to-one without a distinction. We believe that God is transcendent. He's distinct, distinct from his creation. And everything that amazes us about this creation, right, the beauty of the stars in the night sky, the majesty of mountains, the roar of the ocean, all of that points us back to the one who made it all. Beauty of creation should raise in us the question, who did all this? 
And the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus did. He laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of his hands. Jesus is the creator greater than all the works, all the wonders of creation. Which is not to denigrate creation. Because creation is amazing. Because he made it. Um, If this argument doesn't land with you, I, I wonder if part of the problem is just that many of us don't marvel at creation at all that much anymore. I was reading an essay uh, this past week titled, What Did We Lose When We Lost the Stars? And the author was talking about the reality that, uh, that most of us living in the modern era, because we're living after the invention of electricity, because we live in condensed urban and suburban environments, we're missing out on a common experience that humans for thousands of years took for granted, which was just the ability to walk outside at night, to look up, and to see a cloud full of, or a sky full of stars. That was a common human experience for millennia, to look up and to see the stars. I wonder, when was the last time that you saw a clear night sky completely untainted by city lights? Uh, When my wife Mary and I lived in San Antonio, we went out to Big Bend National Park uh, in West Texas with a couple of friends. And I remember at night sitting around a fire with them, talking for a little while, but then slowly devolving into complete silence as all of our necks just did this number. Because it was like the first time in forever that I could remember seeing a sky just saturated with stars. And all of a sudden, like, the Bible starts to make a little more sense to you, right? When it talks about the heavens declare the handiwork of God. It starts to mean more when it's like he can bring them out one by one, knows them by name. Like, well, okay. That is impressive. We hardly ever see that, right? In that essay I just mentioned, uh, the author actually references a news article. I thought this was funny, from 1994. There was an earthquake that knocked out power to much of Los Angeles in the middle of the night. And so with all the lights out, many people in L.A. actually saw the stars for the first time. It's actually a really clear night, so they could actually see the Milky Way. And some people had never seen it before. They were seeing it for the first time, and it freaked them out. And so they started calling the cops to be like, something is going on up there. I don't know what they thought the police were going to do. Can you imagine being the police officer taking that report? Like, stars are in the sky, I guess. I don't know what to tell you. Right? You never see it. But Dante, in his divine comedy, at one point refer- refers to the stars as God's lure, as an efficient lure. That they are the means by which he draws us in. I think it's fair to say that many of us have lost that sense of wonder at the creation. And that's significant because if we lose that, We risk losing wonder at the one who made it all. We stop wondering about the one who did it all. And the author of Hebrews is telling us it's Jesus. He did that. And yet the wonder of Advent, the wonder of Christmas, is that the same one who laid the foundation of the earth 
The same one who hung the stars in the sky. The transcendent one becomes imminent. He chooses to enter in to his creation. In Jesus, he becomes one of us. A baby sleeping under the night sky that he created. Jesus is the creator. He is better than all of his even great creation. But the author of Hebrews doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that Jesus is also the eternal one in verses 11 and 12. He continues this quotation from Psalm 102, and he teases out the implications further of this creator-creature distinction. One of them is that the creator is eternal, and this physical creation is not. Even the most impressive parts of our physical world, the parts that seem like they're going to stand forever, are on a clock. All right, I looked it up this week. Scientists think that the sun has about seven or eight billion years left, give or take, a billion or so. I want that job, a billion years, give or take. Everything's going to burn out, right? You and I will. Our legacies, such as they are, will. Perhaps you remember the sonnet from high school English class, Osmandius, by Percy Bysshe Shelley. The narrator meets a traveler who ran across part of an ancient statue in a desert, worn down by time and the elements. And it's only part of the statue, just the legs, with a head next to it. And the statue has an inscription on it. My name is Osmandius, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, in despair. And then the poem ends, nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And the irony, of course, is that this statue of Ozymandias, king of kings, invites everyone to look on works that are nowhere to be seen. They have been wiped away by the sands of time. Like everything else. Of course, you and I will be too, along with any empires we manage to build in our time here. But not, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus. He is the eternal one. He uses this language of worn out clothing, right? You and I wear out clothes. They get holes. Eventually, we have to get new ones. And the author of Hebrews says the universe is like a garment that will wear out. But Jesus never will. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why does that matter? Because nothing in this world that we look at for security or meaning or value in this world, right, can last. Money runs out. The praise and applause of other people fades. But Jesus is forever. And his love for you is forever. His posture towards you is the same forever. Author of Hebrews tells us that he laid the foundation of the earth. That language gets picked up a lot in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that before the foundation of the earth, 
God chose us in him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Before there was a before, you were on the heart of God. That's why it matters that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, because he loves sinners like you and like me. Jesus is the eternal one. And finally, Jesus, in verses 13 and 14, we see, is the enemy defeater. He adds one final quotation from Psalm 110 to finish this comparison of Jesus to angels. Look back at verse 13 with me. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Jesus is the one who sits at the Father's right hand. Now to sit near a king at any time would be significant, right? We're never told that the angels sit in the presence of God. In fact, when the angel Gabriel shows up in Luke chapter 1, when he shows up to tell Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son named John, the one who's going to become John the Baptist, he tells him all this, and Zechariah says, how am I to know? Right? How am I supposed to believe this? And Gabriel tells him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And you kind of feel like, all right, yeah, that would do it for me. I stand in the presence of God. But the important part is, he stands. Gabriel, as impressive as he is, does not sit in the presence of God. He stands ready to serve, ready to go at a moment's notice. Verse 14 tells us, ministering spirits angels are ready to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They serve the king. They are not the king. So to sit down with the king in any way would indicate a different level of familiarity. But to sit down with him while he is on his throne, to sit in one of the seats on his right or on his left, the most dignified stations in the entire kingdom, that's another matter altogether. And the author of Hebrews says that is where Jesus sits. That language of making your enemies a footstool describes this ancient Near Eastern military practice, a really humiliating one, actually. When one king would conquer another, he would have the defeated king brought in, and he would be laid on the ground before him, and the victorious king would prop his feet up on his neck to send a message to him and all his people. It was an act of utter humiliation. You have been conquered. And the author of Hebrews invokes that image to say that Jesus does that. He is the conquering king. He rests his feet on the necks of his enemies, which are who? It's the evil one, right? Satan, evil, death, that Jesus has utterly humiliated them. How did Jesus do that? Well, he became a man. He walked around and touched people who were unclean, dirty lepers, and healed them. He welcomed outcasts like prostitutes and tax collectors to his table, offered them wholeness, and he died on a cross for you and for me. He came not to be served, but to serve. The author of Hebrews finishes in verse 14 talking about how Jesus is better than the angels because they are servants 
Jesus is the king. They serve. He rules. But of course, there's an irony there. What did King Jesus do? He served. He did not consider, Philippians 2 tells us, equality with God something to be held on to, to be grasped at all costs, but emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He made himself low. And by death, he conquered death. And because he did, he won. He is the conquering king. So everything is going to be okay. I began in, at the beginning this morning talking about how we seem to be in the middle of something. And I know many of us this morning are, are in the middle of stories to which we don't know the end. Hard stories that may not get easier in the near term. And Jesus tells us that in the end, it will be okay. That He has conquered. And He invites us to hold on. There's an author named uh, Kate DiCamillo. She's the author of a children's book. Perhaps you've read it. The Tale of Despero. Anybody read this? It's about a mouse who sets out on a quest to rescue a beautiful princess from the rats. And back in January, she posted this really beautiful story on her Facebook page about this fun interaction she had. She was at the grocery store, and she was in the checkout line, and she had a little boy come up to her. She said that she was sitting there, and the small boy walked past her once, and then he did it again, and then he did it a third time, and she was starting to get a little concerned about what this little boy is doing. And the fourth time he walked past her, he had his mother in hand. And he pointed at Kate and he said, that's her. And his mother said, don't point, honey. Don't point. And then to the author, the mother said, my son's class is reading this book, The Tale of Despero, and he thinks that you're the author, one of the books. And she said, oh, I am. That's me. And she said, oh, okay, well, that's lovely. Is it okay if he asks you a question? And she said, absolutely, please, go ahead. And she says, go ahead, honey. And the little boy looks up at her and says, what I want to know is, will it be okay? Is the mouse going to be okay? And she looks down at this little boy and she says, Yes. And she said, the little boy responded and said, oh, good. And she said, this was the part that got her. She said, now I can relax my heart. And she said, yes. Yes, you can. I know that for many of us, um, sometimes this, this time of year and the things that people like me say on Sunday mornings to you land a little shallow. Like they're kind of like band-aids that we kind of are trying to paper over some really serious wounds for you. Uh, and I'm sorry about that for the ways that it really is, that it comes across shallow or too quick um, in the midst of a painful season for you. But I do have to say that I think the story of the Bible and the story of Hebrews and the story of Jesus and the story of Christmas is this, that it is going to be okay. 
Maybe not immediately, but there is a king who has conquered pain and suffering and death. And he wins. And so, however much you're able, you can relax your heart. We are looking to the creator, the eternal one, who doesn't wear out, who wins. Would you look to him this morning? Let me pray as I close us. Father, we give you praise for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you that he who laid the foundation of the earth, who hung the stars in the sky, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. That we have seen that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. So I pray this morning, Lord, for those of us who believe that but are struggling to believe, would you again capture our hearts with this good news that Jesus has conquered, that he is the king, that he is the eternal one who will not wear out and that his love does not change. And for those of us, Lord, who do not yet believe, if this is true, would you open our eyes to see it? Would you give us hearts that long to know you? Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.